Listeners, today's guest is one of the great erotic writers of her own generation and probably many others. This episode may not be suitable for all ages. During the course of the evening, the party had reached a peak. The dykes had all assembled in the main conference room. The purpose of the meeting was to reach a decision on what to do with the young dead. Each dyke had her own ideas of what the initiation test should be. But only one suggestion would be used. A vote was being taken on the suggestions, and the straws were being drawn to see who would carry out the initiation. The Initiation, a 1959 educational film probably shown in high school health classes. The American girls who were its intended audience learned that lesbianism and lesbians lurked everywhere. The film begins at the end of a little party where an innocent known as the Deb, short for debutante, has been invited for the sole purpose of making her into a lesbian. If she were not such an innocent, of course, she might have picked up a big clue at the beginning of the evening that something was up. Most of the women have shoulder-length hair and are dressed in conventional feminine clothes. But one, who seems to be running the group like a quasi-cult, wears a men's suit, has cropped hair, and puffs on a pipe. We join this party at its culmination as one of these sexual outlaws takes the innocent upstairs. The others draw straws to see which one of them will have the pleasure of initiating the Deb into sexual practices to which he will then, the narrator implies, become addicted. Not surprisingly, the single, mannish lesbian pulls the short straw. As the other women pin the struggling Deb down to a bed, this sinister figure, who toggles between genders, hereafter known as the Dyke, performs a sexual act that the narrator leaves to our imagination. The Dyke never feels remorse or shame for what she has done. To her, it's another conquest, one to be remembered for a short time and then forgotten. Soon the party will be over and she'll return to the heterosexual world that she so violently rejects. In this Cold War scenario, the dyke is technically a butch, but the filmmakers identify her as an imitation man who has cultivated a harem of femmes bewitched by her sexual prowess. But the film does not portray the dyke as a lover. Instead, she is a compulsive, narcissistic rapist who cannot get what she wants except by trapping and converting other women. The dyke makes it clear who lesbians are, a menace to society who are in deep need of psychological treatment, preferably in a locked ward somewhere. This was where a great many lesbians did, in fact, end up prior to the 1970s, undergoing barbaric treatments until they renounced homosexuality. And yet, silly and homophobic as it is, to modern eyes, the initiation is also weirdly... hot? Much like the pulp novels about lesbians available in any 1950s drugstore, the film offers a glimpse of a sexy, hidden world of butches and femmes that was an undeniable and pleasantly dirty alternative to conventional heterosexuality. In fact, in the working-class bar world, butches were in charge of sexual pleasure, even though femmes were full participants in weaving the erotic web that made that pleasure possible. Tantalizingly, the plot of the initiation infers that if one sexual experience could be transformative, even addictive, not only did every woman have the potential to be a lesbian, she might also want to act on it. So the film unintentionally leaves one question wide open. Why is lesbian sex bewitching? How is it that the dyke has managed to turn so many women away from sex with men? What the film can't imagine between lesbians is love. 
the love Butches and Femmes had for each other, the love they made, and the love for the spaces at bars like the Sea Colony, Laurels, Bagatelle, the Duchess, they carved out for themselves. At these bars, Butches and Femmes paid for overpriced, watered-down drinks in exchange for the privilege of being together, touching, making love, and inhabiting the selves that they had to hide from the world. Historians have written about that working-class bar world of butches and femmes, one continually under siege from the police. But it is the personal essays by Amber Hollibaugh, Sherry Moraga, Leslie Feinberg, Patrick Califia, Minnie Bruce Pratt, Gail Rubin, and others that often give us the most authentic sense of not just the struggles, romance, and pleasure of a pre-gay liberation world of public sex, but of the political consciousness that Butch Femme community created. It was steeped in suffering, but also infused with joy. The author who has done as much or more than any other to preserve our lesbian political past and the history of our very existence is my guest for this final episode of Pride Month 2023. Joan Nessel has been a critical voice in lesbian feminism since the 1970s and a beautiful femme who embraced the unrespectable as a path to truth and justice. A teacher, erotic writer, activist, and founder of Brooklyn's Lesbian Herstory Archives, Joan has a new selection of essays out last year from Sinister Wisdom Press, A Sturdy Yes of a People. It's a first-person political history of living a queer life that not only returns us to the pre-liberation roots of the lesbian and feminist community, but links LGBTQ plus struggles to the fight for justice that marginalized people everywhere deserve. Join Joan Nessel and me for this episode of Why Now, where history and politics meet the challenge of today. And I'm your host, Claire Potter, Professor of History Emeritus at the New School for Social Research, a contributing editor at Public Seminar, and the author of the Political Junkie Substack. This is episode 29, To Sexual Outlaws with Love. Joan Nessel, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you for having me, Claire. Your book, A Sturdy Yes of a People, collects a lot of essays that have been published elsewhere, that have been published in other volumes. But together, what story do they tell? They tell, I hope, uh, they tell a personal story, my own, and they tell the story of a complex people or complex peoples a people judged deviant, a people judged unwanted, from, I think, around the 40s till now. And one of the sadly surprising moments is that I felt this book was going to be a work of antiquity. It's a very old work. Unfortunately, and I live in Australia now, so I have an outsider's view, what is happening in America sort of resonates the the tellings that I try, that I bring to life again, and I'm amazed and grateful that they'll be in the world again, I think have direct connection to what unwanted peoples of America are going through now. Yes, and currently some of the most unwanted people that have been selected by the right are transgender people in the United States. 
And I've noticed a lot of parallels between how transgender people are treated, how they're stigmatized, how they're being surveilled, and the ways in which butch and femme lesbians were being stigmatized and treated. Can you talk about the butch femme scene in the 1950s, how people lived, how people managed to push back against repression in those days? It's sort of the history of my life in ways. First of all, I'd say it's very complex peoples. There are many different kinds of butch femme peoples. I think the key word here, the key word of oppression is respectability. It was then it was then and it is now, and I'll explain. But and the other key word is desire. So desire is the shaping force when you have a whole state leaning on you not to exist. And one quick example I'll give, for instance, even when we went to our policed bars, we had to adhere to a strict dressing code. You had to wear three pieces of same sex clothing. And for butch women, that was a particular they wore men's clothing, it suited them more, but they could be arrested for transvestism, which was a crime. We could be arrested for dancing together in our bars. Bars were surveilled by the police. There was something called the vice squad, which for younger people may be hard to imagine, but it was very much alive and they controlled our entry into our bars, which was the only place. Remember, I'm going now back. Well, the bars go back to the 20s. I enter them in 19, late 1950s. There were usually two rooms and in the one room where we could dance together, there was a red light that would flash when the cops were coming in for their payoffs. And the cops would often beat up butch women to humiliate them in front of their femmes. So to say it precisely, we were a controlled, a judged, a pathologized community that sought out illegal places to create life. And I see those sites of those bars, which were marked by our desire. We wanted so desperately to be able to dance, to touch, to make love. We learned how to make love, you know, while the while we were dancing, which is no mean feat, but it was wonderful. But we did it out of both desperation and desire. And desire, you know, youth of all kinds of sexualities, when feeling the strength of their own needs, can take on all kinds of struggles. And the butch femme community did that I, I entered it as a young woman. I met women who had been living that way. And usually it was working class women. So that added the whole other layer of a f- economic struggle. The way I summed up at one point was we were a community of women who had so little but needed for our own fulfillment of touch to create worlds for ourselves. And whatever spaces we could crack open a little bit whether they were police bars or dark places in a, uh, in a park or a subway toilet or a church pew. These are all places where I, when I spoke to Butch Femme Women from my Persistent Desire book, where they explained, and myself, I remember making love in a subway toilet that people might find disgusting, but it was one of the places where we could go because we didn't have places to live. Young women were still living maybe with their grandparents also, you know, we had to liberate spaces is what I'm trying to say. But so, and butch femme to the outside eye was seen and by feminists later on uh, as sort of aping heterosexuality. And I 
was always struggling because I was lucky enough and not many, many, many butch femme women did not survive into the, the light of lesbian feminism because of all the struggles financially, with alcohol, with judgment, with jobs. And also, I want to say, if it was just my life, I wouldn't have spent 50 years, both with the Lesbian History Archives and my own writing, to talk about it. But it was the lives of the communities I saw. And working class people of all kinds are usually the least included in history. I was so in love with my community. The image of a young butch woman sewing a piece of lace on her male socks so she could pass that three dress code law. These were the little acts of resistance, but they were huge because these women had no protection. When they were hauled away in what was then called a paddy wagon, which you know is an anti-Irish word, when they were hauled away in the vice squad wagons, there was nobody to protect them. Only us, I mean, we, as a community. So because Butch Femme was a sexually explicit community, when we walked hand in hand, Butchers and Femmes, on the streets of Greenwich Village, we were very easy targets for violence because we became totally clear, and I call it that we were an erotic, self-sufficient visual image, and that infuriated straight men. So much was going on. There's wonderful books, other books to read. There's, there's Boots of Leather, Slippers of Gold by Madeline Davis and Liz Kennedy, if, if younger people or anyone is interested in. But the Butch Femme community was exploring multiple genders in one gender. And many Butch women were also uh, passing women. They passed as men to hold jobs and to come as close perhaps to their desire to be a trans person before we had so many possibilities. So I see the butch femme times and the butch femme communities as early, as early representatives of the complexity of gender and their unique gift, it seems to me, is the complexity of desire, a desire big enough to take on the most crushing societal mechanisms. Very beautiful. And what you're saying about multiple genders in one gender speaks in important ways to today's dilemmas in the United States, where the right has used the imposition of a gender binary, not just to crack down on trans people, but crack yes, down on lesbian yes. and gay people, to crack down yes. on sex education, to insist that to teach children about sex or talk to them about their sexual feelings is to impose sexuality on them. So I think this period that you write about in this book, this period that is your life, is extraordinarily important for people to think about. I want you to go back and talk about your childhood and youth a little bit, because you became very yes. sexually aware at an early yes. age. And you had a mother who was both very difficult and who shone a light for you about who you yes, could be. Yes, I know. I will, Claire. I wanted to say something because I've I've dedicated, I, I swear, I would never speak publicly at this point. I have to say, we are in a time of fascism of rising fascism. The right pretends to talk about sexuality. It 
it, it needs a scapegoat. It's picked a scapegoat, trans people, like the Jews were in the 40s. Behind all of these conversations is a much, is, is a huge, huge overthrow of the human spirit. So this is not a time for division within us. It's not a division for us to play right into their hands as some members of our communities are doing. Okay, I just want to put that out there. So yes, my childhood I think I can say now at 83 that I was both in some way deeply fortunate and perhaps in more traditional ways, deeply unfortunate. My mother was widowed five months before I was born. She came from a working class Jewish family that lived in Harlem in the turn of the 20th century. And my mother started work when she was 14. And I only found out after she died because she had written it on, my mother was a bookkeeper her whole life. My mother was a sex worker and a bookkeeper. She um, wrote on the back of her ledger sheets and they're at the archives that she had been gang raped when she was 14. And because of that rape, she was acutely aware, as she called it, the right of the penis and the vagina to find each other. I think it's a rare legacy of a parent. I always, I would say my mother never taught me how to brush my teeth, but she taught me about blowjobs. Now you can see there's a mixed blessing in this, but so yes, so I was raised by her and her life was sexualized. I always laugh. I had more uncles and less aunts than anyone. Um, and later in her life, she, turn tricks. She picked men up at the racetrack. My mother was also a gambler. So it's a life of an addiction that's not so much talked about, but it was a crushing addiction. So I was very aware of, I'd be in one room and I could hear my mother making love in the other room. And, you know, this is for working class children of many backgrounds. This is not an unusual thing. But I had to make a decision what I would do with this legacy. And I think in some ways, my whole exploration of sexuality, of, of the unrespectable, what I call the undomesticated woman, particularly, has been a focus to try to understand my mother's humanity. Regina, who always said, I didn't want to be a mother, I'm just a woman. And in her writing, she said, she recognized the sexual urge in herself. And that is what, in a way, her legacy to me, to respect that urge in the face of the bullies, the brutal ones. And yes. And your mother, on the one hand, took you to a doctor no, at one point or wanted you to see a doctor when she learned you were a lesbian, but she also wasn't homophobic. And that strikes me as kind of yes, a gift, yes, too. Yes, there's a wonderful thank Julienzer and, and everyone at Sinister Wisdom. No, nobody else would have done this book for bringing out old things um, once again. And in it, I reread myself the time in 1973 when my mother spoke. So there was, okay, for, there was a place where our dreams were born 
as a free people, and it was called the Firehouse in New York City on Worcester Street, an old unused firehouse that they gave to the queers. And it was wonderful. It had a swirly iron staircase, you know, that the fire the firemen would have come down. And it was the one that caught the heels of all the drag queens when they'd go in, because it was a meeting place for lesbians and gays and trans, sex workers, everybody. Jonathan Katz gave his first play there. And we took it over, the lesbians, as we tend to do. And we had Lesbian Feminist Liberation was born there. And we had Sunday night programs. This one was Lesbian Mothers, 1973, and along comes Regina, right? And she's a short woman, like I'm a short woman. And she's sitting in the back, and then they, and I was on the panel, and my mother raises her hand, and she talks about how proud she is and wonderful it is that her daughter is a lesbian. So to read those words, to know they're captured. Now, I just have to say, it wasn't always like that. And I had to leave home. I left home very early. And I sometimes I leave home while I was still in high school because she was also, you can't make a simple story out of complex lives. And, but yes, my mother, she just couldn't, she was puzzled how I was going to make my way in the world, I think. Well, and it, in some ways, wasn't wrong for mothers to be concerned about how their daughters were going to make their way in a homophobic world where they were being constantly policed. But let's talk about another experience that you discuss in the book, which is the experience of yes. anti-Semitism. Oh, yes. I'm born in 1940, and in the 1950s, I'm leaving my 10-year-old period and going to my teens and because so there were three of us my brother my mother and myself and because my mother always had to work she never had vacations and finally one day my brother who worked for american airlines came and said we're going to go to a dude ranch out in arizona though that was like saying to the nestles that we were going to paris you know a dude ranch in arizona and of course like all young perhaps going to be queer children i loved horses but what a time that was, and what an education it was for me. So my brother, not knowing, he says his pals gives him the name of this dude ranch, and we, we take the plane, we go, we get picked up, this station wagon comes. The man who's picking us up, he looks at us very too closely, I thought, anyway, takes us to the dude ranch. We're called into the office. Well, the first question was, will you have fish on Fridays? It should have been a clue. And we said, we'll have anything on Fridays. And we're called into the manager's office. And he said to us, I'm sorry, but this dude ranch is reserved for members of the Gentile race. I didn't go into that office. My brother and my mother did. And I sat out in the little room that had this kind of library. And in the library, I saw a copy of Mein Kampf. We went to dinner that night in this very cozy dining room, you know, very rustic. There was a fireplace. But we noticed everybody else was sitting together at two or three tables, and we were off to our side. And next to our plate was a typed card. Because this dude ranch is run as a family place, we, are lim we only accept people of the Gentile faith. I wish I had saved that card. And they offered us, they offered my mother a choice. They said, look, you, until you find another place, as long as you don't come in the front door, as long as you don't mix with the other visitors, we'll let you stay. Until, and my mother said, said, no, we're leaving. 
we've been looking forward to this vacation. But then they did this thing. The owner said, you know, there's a dude ranch not far away that for people like you. So it was a Jewish dude ranch. I mean, you could laugh at this, except this was America. And what it was doing to Jews, it was doing 3,000 times to black Americans. In my writing, what I try to do is you take in the small lesson and see the big. Or you take in the, the small crack in the surface representation of what humans are doing and see the large thing. So when we got to the Jewish dude ranch, the issue was different. They were very, many of them were well off. And there was my mother, and I have an image of her, which I'm probably going to cry, but I will never forget. Which So here, which my mother struggling to have something called a vacation. I see her out in the desert, you're in the desert. She's on a swing, a child's swing. And she's a short, round woman, and she's wearing polyester clothes that don't fit well, so her little belly is swelling is there, you can see, and she's kicking up dust as she swings. She's lost. She's swinging back and forth in this child's swing. And how old was I? I'm, I must have been, let's say, maybe I was 16. And I was seeing, I saw, okay, there are these cracks. There's anti-Semitism. Well, they hate Jews, okay? And now I'm seeing something else. Now I'm seeing a displaced woman who has no role in the usual places. What do I do with this? What do I do with this? My heart was breaking, but I was so young. Life gave me these fractures and queerness in its deepest sense. But there's a humanity that connects us all when we see what falls out when things are fractured. Who gets left in the dust? And it's also important to emphasize, if listeners haven't understood this so far, that these experiences made you a fighter. You did not retreat. You moved forward and fought for your life and fought for other people's lives. And one thing I would like to bring up right away is the founding of the Lesbian Herstory Archives. I had learned from my mother that respectability is an exiler and that there is a huge passionate complexity of human life that falls off the map in restricted places. So that bar community, and I was so young, I say, I asked the same questions, but again, I have to, desire said, I have to go to that bar, I have to cross those dark New York streets from the East Village to the West Village at 11 o'clock at night, streets that women were not supposed to go, you know, respectable women. I had to be in the company of sex workers, of passing women, of teachers who were hiding there identities, all these camouflages for this simple thing, a chance to kiss, perhaps. But yes, it was my mother. It was all those images. And Miss Hampton, Mabel Hampton, uh, who had come to work for my mother when my, they met in a luncheonette in Queens. And then that quickly ended. And then they became friends and also uh, racetrack buddies and many things. And Miss Hampton was in my life until she died. In fact, she ended her life living with my partner and I and our, our caring for her. But she was the first lesbian I ever knew and an incredible, I hate the word, I won't say role model, but it, an incredible, you talk about a fighter, a fighter. I mean, Miss Hampton had to fight everything. She had to fight the racism of her time, the classism of her time. So it was the community of unwanted people, women of all kinds, in the bars, 
that when I had the luxury and also stability, and that's a big word, irony, it was middle-class lesbian feminist women, particularly Deborah Adel, who gave me the stability to look back and say, somehow I'm going to create a place where the women I met in the bar community who either have died or have disappeared mostly because they were unwanted in the early days of lesbian feminism. So it was to say thank you to them and to thank my lovers, my lovers, my lovers. And then it was also, I have to say one thing, and this is hard to work into a compelling history, but I started teaching in something called the Sikh program in 1966, it would have been. And the community of both teachers and students I met there who were, when I first started, Black and Puerto Rican teachers and students educated me. As a teacher, I was always teaching myself to be a better teacher as learning from my students. And one of the books I read was... um, Albert Memmi's The Colonized and the Colonizer. And there's a line and a paragraph. And this is, I'm a working class kid. People think working class people don't read. Well, sometimes we are the most ferocious readers because we need it more than anybody. And we need the play of ideas. And he wrote a paragraph in which the last one, the last sentence was, the colonized are condemned to lose their memory. And that, remember, I'm going to a bar called the Sea Colony. I mean, it was the whole image of us being a colonized people is what led me, and plus my tea working with the Black and Puerto Rican students of my Sikh program and my fellow teachers led me to say the economic materiality of getting an apartment that I had never thought I would ever get. It was a rent control. Deb helped me go to the bank to get a loan. Working class women like myself often need middle class women to teach them how to negotiate the respectable realities of middle-class life. And it was Deb, she came down from New Hampshire. She took me, she literally walked me into the bank and said, Joan, don't be scared because my mother always had liens on her salary. We were evicted many, many times. I was terrified of banks and their power. So we get this big apartment and I looked at it and the first thing I said, this is too big for me. My mother had a nervous breakdown. She was living with me. My lover at the time wasn't working. So I had these people to care for and I had a place of memory to create. And that was a lesbian history archives. It was a way of saying thank you to every judged community that had ever given me life. And so many women came to live with you. Um, yes. in that apartment as the boxes yes. piled up and um, yes. the folders accumulated and so on. You know, you're talking about being a teacher. A big part of this book is devoted to the erotic and a beautiful, beautiful writing about your love life. And it has occurred to me that for the first time, that being a great teacher and being a great yes, lover yes, are actually yes, connected yes, skills. I just have to say this. I mean, there's no sexuality in teaching. There's no erotic. No, 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 no. The erotic, the passion, the passion to create touch into a communicable thing is deeply involved in teaching. You know, the right wing, and I think of the, the, the title of my first book, I get a thrill when I say that I that I had books. A restricted country is, you know, it was so real and it's even more real now. So if you restrict conversations of human reality 
you get a world that's open to fascism. So of course the erotic is in every classroom, I hope, in the good way, in the sense of wanting to say, what we are studying together is a body. It's a body and it needs to be embraced. It needs to be looked at. It's a work of love and, and it's a desire of a different kind, but it's a desire to touch. And that touching is, of course, yes. virtual, but you need the capacity to be very self-aware and very aware yes. of the other person yes. or people. That has to happen at the same time, yes. and not everyone and can do that. And let me tell you that in my last years of my teaching, or I was haunted as well by the fears, but my students at SEEK never let me down. So I would teach writing. I would teach students who our whole program did. It was at Queens College. Every city university had a SEEK program. I would literally sometimes kneel by the side of my students as they were working. I was a great one for helping with transition words, how they could move from one paragraph to another. And I would put my arms around. I mean, there was touch, you know. My students, I'll just give you a quick story of this. When Restricted Country came out, and I'm, we, I was in the Sikh English department. It was a colonized department we had never seen as real. But anyway, when my book came out, they usually celebrate a faculty member's book. So I... I told my students that I was teaching them writing, but I wouldn't tell them anything about the book because I didn't feel right that they should read it because there was sex in it. Anyway, the English department threw a reading for me and I like maybe three of my 70 colleagues came, but my students came. And I have to say, when I walked in, this is one of the hardest readings I ever gave, to see my students there. And I opened by saying, I see my students are here. My job here is to teach you writing. If anything you hear now gets in the way of that, please tell me. And I apologize. And I do the reading. I didn't read some of the more challenging sexual pieces. but And at the end of it, it was led. My, my students stood. They came in a group. Maybe there was 10 of them. The lead student, Nivia, I think her name was, said to me, please don't ever teach us out of shame that's a word we haven't talked about but shame society will shame like a hammer and when you fight back as you said i i had to be from a very early age as these as my Sikh students willing to stand alone and i do it now i'm an anti-occupationist jew and i must say that you must be willing to stand alone with the love of the community deep in your heart and that came into effect with the the barnard sex conference it came in effect with the anti-pornography movement. I had a different view, I and others. You have to be willing to stand alone. And I thank my mother. I thank the women in the bars. I thank my life in the 50s. I learned with communities in my heart to stand alone if I needed to. I think that's so important. And I want to just backtrack a little bit to the attacks on feminists like yourself and people who wrote about sex, people whose sex lives were enacted on yes. the page and in public. And at a certain point, the shaming is coming yes. from inside yes. the feminist community, from yes. inside the lesbian community. And that's also a parallel today where we are seeing people who call themselves feminists and actually a number of lesbians who are condemning yes trans people and particularly trans feminine people. So can you talk a little bit about what happens when the shame is coming from inside your own community? Well, yes, I think it is a different kind of fight, but it uses some of the same strengths you have to build up. I think 
terms, you have to see the full extent of the hatreds. And somehow from a very early age, and maybe it was, as you pointed out, you know, that going to Arizona, that experience, I knew that there were connections between those who were hated, just as there are between those who hate. And you can't leave exiles. You can't say, oh, thank you for my freedom, and I don't care what happens at the border. Thank you for my freedom, and I don't care who goes to jail instead of me. And I think that was, um, it was hard. I knew my sex writing would get me into trouble. I knew that. And the extent of the uh, attacks, not just on me, but people like Gail Rubin, people like uh, Amber Halibau, those of us who were considered sex positive, it's, the, you know, it's different in the sense, first, a part of you wants to say, but you should know better. You should know better. But actually, one gets a sense of the depth and complexity of humanity when you're an unwanted people. And there's a connection to the community that's rejecting you. or And you're almost fighting for the good of it. I had the strength to take on the community that I loved in some ways. I mean, feminism gave me everything. I never started writing about the old days until I had the strengths that were given to me by a lesbian feminist community. But with that came a bargain I could not accept. And I think that's what I'm talking. And when, you know, marriage came and all this, I saw what was going to happen. We were going to be divided up. And Gail Rubin has written about this into the good gays or the good queers and the bad queers. And that's exactly what's happened. And and feminists have fallen into the fascist trap. That's what. I'm, and what they're doing, they're just weakening us. They, instead of this glorious complexity of the question, wow, you mean many different people can be a woman and many different kinds of people can be a man and there can be many new ways to enact gender instead of seeing this as liberation yet coming to us again in which again the archives exist so the anxiety of being forgotten is dispelled lesbians are not being replaced feminists are not being replaced it's an enrichment of everything as if there's not enough to go around and therefore Anyone who, who seems like they're not, they're taking our ground from under us. No, no, no. I have never seen so many lesbian kisses in every public uh, cultural expression in my life. Every book I read, there's a, you know, it's, it's just the opposite. But this is orchestrated hatred. And, and some of us have fallen for it. And those who say, like here in Australia, in Melbourne, we've had fascists marching with anti-trans feminists, and the feminists don't see a problem. I mean, they, oh yeah, we're not them, but they are them. They are saying they are feeding a scapegoated people into the same hungry mouth for, you know, to create um, a constricted human world. That's what I meant. When I was talking about being willing, I, I never expected the straight world to accept me. That wasn't, I meant stand alone. So as a Jew, I stand, but now there are many wonderful others who stand with me when we say what Israel, uh, the occupation is anti-Jewish as we know it. The occupation, the brutalization, the humiliation, the deprivation of future, everything that is going on, it is not what being a Jew means. It's not what being a queer means to hate someone because they have a complex way of being in their gender.
Absolutely. So it seems almost too much at this point. You've given us so much in this interview, Joan, (laughs) and I thank you for it. But it seems like almost too much for me to ask you, why should our listeners read this book now? I hope the stories of resistance, the stories of touch will, one, perhaps arouse curiosity about desire, but I hope it will give, if it can give anything, it will give courage and strength to take the hard positionings, to know that at the end of your life, as I am now, when I look back, it is the moments of community organizing, and this is my, the, the moments of community struggle for the fullest human community, the fullest humanly conscious complex and loving community that is what makes life. And I I don't have a family, a biological family like many others. I have communities of families. So I hope you make your way to my words because you're trying to understand how does a complex body survives such times and how we can make sure that the worst of what could happen doesn't. And that's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to Why Now on your favorite podcast platform. Please leave a rating and a comment so that other listeners can find us. Go to the Political Junkie Substack at clairepotter.substack.com for show notes, to listen to more episodes, or to leave a comment. You can subscribe to Political Junkie for free, or you can pay as little as $5 a month to get every podcast and every newsletter delivered straight to your desktop two times a week. Share this podcast with a friend who loves history, politics, and smart conversation. And follow me on Twitter at Tenured Radical, that's capital T, capital R, or at my website, clairepotter.com. Why Now is supported by the New School for Social Research and by paying subscribers to Political Junkie. Why Now and Political Junkie are written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Claire Potter. My opening theme is by Galaxy News, and my closing theme is by Avocado Junkie. That's all for now. See you next time.